This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Russell Reno is the editor of First Things Magazine. It's one of the most important periodicals in the United States. A native of Baltimore, Dr. Reno earned his PhD at Yale University. He's written numerous books and articles, and of course he regularly appears in the pages of First Things. I want to draw attention to his two most recent books, most importantly, The Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West, and just before that, the publication of his book, Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. I commend both of them to you for your reading. First Things Magazine was started by the late Richard John Newhouse, one of the most important public intellectuals in the United States. First Things continues that conversation in that line. It's a very important meeting of theology, culture, ethics, well, just about every part of the contemporary conversation that deserves attention and a very high level of attention. Rusty Arena, welcome to Thinking in Public. Great to be with you. Well, here we are at a time of asking basic questions, and I've looked forward to this conversation with you because we can talk about some of these basic questions. Uh, basic questions about the position of, uh, of any kind of convictional Christianity in the modern world, uh, questions about uh, the church in this very uh, perplexing age, uh, and, uh, and, and questions about, I, I think, perhaps uh, right in the center of our conversation, questions about uh, what it means to try to conserve uh, the permanent things in the midst of a society that seems to be at war with them. So uh, there's a lot for us to talk about. Indeed. You've been writing about these things for years, and uh, you wrote about them as an Episcopalian. Now you write about them as a Roman Catholic. You wrote about them as a, uh, a, as a professor at Creighton University, and now you write about them uh, as a uh, theological uh, cultural journalist and, uh, and as the, uh, the editor of First Things, which is, in my view, one of the most important uh, journals of in intellectual conversation in the United States. Uh, lay out the uh, landscape for us. Just tell us where you see things. And we're having this conversation uh, about 25% uh, into 2021. What does the world look like? Yeah, I mean, you described the feeling that we all have, uh, men and women of faith, that we're operating on different terrain, new terrain. And I would characterize it this way. It is not the case that fewer people are going to church. Uh, I think that if you look at church attendance statistics, they've been really strikingly constant over the last 100 years. Something like 35% of Americans say they go to church every Sunday, and about 25%, according to more accurate studies, actually go to church. But the big change is that a really dramatically increasing number of people have no connection to Christianity at all. So when I was a kid growing up in Baltimore, Maryland in the 60s and 70s, you know, people didn't go to church, but they thought of themselves as Christian. So they accepted Christianity as the sacred canopy for society. Now, you know, my guess is that 50% of the graduates of Ivy League institutions today have no idea of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and that was not true when I was a college student uh, 40 years ago. Uh, you know, I'm not saying I went to college with people who believed, but they knew something about what their Jewish and Christian religions actually taught. So that's a big change. And I think that's 
helps explain why we feel now that we're kind of voices crying in the wilderness. Um, and I think we just have to, we have to adjust our expectations accordingly. Yeah, you know, as a, an historian and theologian, I would try to trace it a little bit this way and, and, and see if it makes sense to you. Uh, the dominant worldview that was accessible to most Christians uh, was pretty much the dominant worldview accessible to most Americans uh, throughout most of American history. So that overlap of uh, uh, meta metaphysical visions uh, was uh, was basically uh, a, a, a Venn diagram in which there would have been very little outside the center. And that didn't mean that that uh, all Americans were believing confessing Christians or that they were active, faithful churchgoers. It did mean that the uh, the understanding of truth, reality, beauty, uh, uh, law, government was was basically drawn from Christian foundations. I think the uh, the slippage there began really early in the uh, in the process of American history, and and certainly by the time you get to the late nineteenth, early twentieth centuries, the trends are accelerating. It seems to me that there was something of an interregnum in the period of the Second World War and the Cold War, kind of a reconsolidation of a, of a civic religion that was beginning to break up, I would argue, before the Second World War. But, uh, but now we're just reaping the whirlwind of, uh, of the fact that, as you say, there are just so many people today who have no cognitive connection to Christianity. They have no Christian intuitions, and, uh, and frankly, they don't even know that they don't have them. Yes, I mean, I think your your observation about mid-20th century is correct. Uh, there's no question that the trauma of the Great Depression and then even more the horrors of World War II uh, really caused people to sort of take a step back and reconnect with uh, um, permanent things, especially religious faith. It was a time of growth of the churches. Um, I know uh, I knew Avery Dulles, Cardinal Avery Dulles, and he said that his father, he grew up in a kind of Easter Christmas, but his father in the late 30s and during the war became more religious and started going to church every Sunday. Um, and so I think that, so I think you're right. If, that, if those events hadn't happened, we would look a lot more like Europe, I think. Uh, we would have secularized more quickly in the middle of the 20th century, but we didn't. And, you know, I'm a former mainline Protestant Episcopalian, and I was kind of bitter at the, what I saw as the betrayals of uh, the classical faith by liberal Protestantism. But now in my older age, I look back and think, well, I should give those men some credit. They kept Christianity alive, animating our elite culture for one generation, maybe even two generations longer than might have otherwise been the case. And I think our country um, is much the better for it. And I really do fear uh, the future of our country where we where we are no longer leavened by um, our Christian inheritance. Um, I think we can become a much crueler, uh, I think the woke revolution that we're experiencing of political correctness, it is so punitive and merciless. And I see that as, a, as an evidence of this dominance of the rise of this post-Christian way of outlook on life. I was asked the other day by a national reporter uh, if I uh, could give an assessment of the anger on the Christian right. And I said, well, if you fear the anger on the Christian right, I just want to tell you, you should really fear the anger uh, once the right is not Christian. The non-Christian right 
is uh, is going to be fueled by an anger far beyond anything on the on the Christian right. But the the fact is that uh, we're living in a culture in which we have become a people to be studied. <laughs> Not listened to. <laughs> no, that's that's well said, and I do think you're absolutely right about uh, the importance of Christianity on the right as a moderating force. I see the anger on the right as anger arising out of a feeling of betrayal. People feel that the leaders of the country have betrayed the American way of life and betrayed them. Uh, whether it's economic globalization that's led to the loss of good-paying jobs for high school-educated people, or whether it's the fact that hundreds of thousands of people died of heroin overdose before anybody actually noticed. So there are many ways in which, and there are many good reasons for them to feel betrayed. But, you know, of course, Christianity <laughs> wants us to, it warns us to not to make anger the root of our, uh, of our lives. And, and it, it presses us to reach out and try to forge bonds with our political adversaries to work towards what we can achieve together. And so I think uh, many of my progressive friends, secular friends, they, they, they really think Christianity is part of the problem on the right. And I say, oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's definitely not part of the problem. It's a much uglier future if we don't have that powerful influence on the right. Right. And without getting uh, too deep into... Uh matters of uh, merely political controversy that uh, often uh, difficult to get out of. If you go back to the January 6th uh, insurrection at the Capitol, you know, the picture that is shown everywhere is of, uh, of someone who was either actually or impersonating a pagan shaman. Uh, and I get it's constantly asked him. Striking picture, yes. Yes. Well, and, and for every reason, visual and political, there, there's every reason why that picture is, is still being published everywhere. But I, I just want to say, do you know anything about Christianity? Do you know anything about paganism? I mean, uh, this person was not standing up as an archbishop. You know, he, was, he was not impersonating a vicar or a church warden. Yes. Uh, there's a uh, very different picture here. Well, I mean, in, the, in my book, uh, Return of the Strong Gods, one of the reasons that I think it's important for us to try to cultivate the unifying strong loves that unite people together is that people are going to find some way. And if we don't uh, provide uh, our country with noble loves, then perverse and destructive loves will arise from the darker forces of, of, uh, of our society. And I, I, I mean, I think that the man, and I guess he was living with his mother. He's a so-called actor living with his mother. Uh, so maybe not the most... Um, and a vegetarian insurrectionist, vegan yeah, insurrectionist. insurrectionist. So maybe not the most stable person, but then all the more reason to worry because it's really unstable. I mean, our Christian faith grounds us in reality and that it's unstable people, angry, unstable people that are dangerous to our civic and like the woman who was killed, uh, uh, you know, she was a veteran, business owner, should be a pillar of her community, but she was in this bizarre three-way so-called open marriage. So, and she, and she was very susceptible to conspiracy theories, not any connection to a religious community. So I think that one of the things that I'm concerned about in our society is the extent to which we have become atomized and people are isolated and they lack the ballast, they're not anchored. And as a consequence, they can be swept up into ideological fevers. And I think that's one reason that the political passions run so hot 
It's actually a consequence of dechristianization because people turn to politics right. as their highest love. You know, I want to go back to uh, our uh, narrative as you were laying it out, uh, going back to liberal Protestantism. Uh, you give them much more credit than do I. Uh, <laughs> well, I have to respond as a confessional Protestant that, uh, you know, having abandoned the faith, they tried to keep the form. And then uh, you credited them with perpetuating the form for some time, but it really wasn't much time at all. And, and I think you'd acknowledge that. It was, uh, you know, perhaps uh, for a few decades, uh, some vestigial influence of, uh, of Christianity uh, appeared in the, in the elites and in the elite structure. I mean, after all, John Foster Dulles was Secretary of State. Uh, and I had, by the way, the opportunity of meeting Cardinal Dulles. And, you know, recognizing what an interesting transition point in human history uh, he was just to be able to, to speak to him and uh, uh, had a very honest conversation and exchange. But, I mean, his father was one of those towering Titanic figures, but it is increasingly apparent there wasn't much theology there. Uh, but there was something of an enduring, even transformed Christian ethic in his mind. And I think that's what has shocked a lot of, a lot of Christians. They had, they had thought that Christian ethic um, and I, I should say, historians of Christianity, they, th they thought that Christian ethic could survive the loss of Christian faith, and, and that's just not so. Uh, history has proven that that's not so. I, I certainly agree. I, I would, you know, um, I would put the liberal Protestant project in America back to people like Phillips Brooks. I think it's a late 19th century thing. So I think it was a kind of cut your losses retreat from, from the Orthodox faith. That was a slow process over a it took about a century in, in my estimation and uh look i i share with you uh, uh a deep criticism of the betrayals that mainline protestantism represents betrayal i mean jay gresham machen is one of my great heroes christianity and liberalism is a is a one of a, a classic book of, of english language uh, theology very prescient as well um so I, I, th I do think we are now um, uh, at a point where the, the, the de-Christianization of the Protestant elite is we're really feeling it. And our, our, our country is led by people. And that's, part, that's one of the sources of division and conflict in our society is that, is that this, this post-Christian sensibility is more likely to dominate in the 20, top 20% than in the general public. And... And that this, this is just one way in which the people running the country are increasingly culturally detached from the people who, whom they lead. The modern project, uh, I think, turns out to be far more hostile to Christianity in ways that are far more effective uh, than, uh, than Christians understood. Look at the 20th century. You look at uh, New Orthodoxy in the early decades of the 20th century and an attempt to make some kind of peace with modernity, uh, but yet to maintain some continuity with classical Christianity. Um, at the expense, by the way, of, I would argue, uh, not, uh, not unimportantly, metaphysics. And, uh, and, and then you had uh, various developments in the 20th century coming all the way down to the... Uh, to, to where we are in the 21st. But in thinking about that, uh, you and both of your most recent books really offer what is not a hopeless, but is a very open-eyed understanding of modernity itself and its effects upon uh, both the society at large and, and uh, historic Christianity. So lay yeah. that out for us a bit. 
So, you know, I, I was very influenced by Karl Barth when I was a young student. And, and there's a, uh, and St. Augustine's idea of sin, the root of sin is pride. And so I was very much believed, believed that the problem of modernity is that it encourages us a Promethean pride that refuses God's authority. Uh, as I was teaching in the 1990s and, and uh, engaging young people, I became more and more, well, I became less and less confident in that diagnosis. And I began to see that actually uh, our society is more bewitched by what I call these sort of gods of weakening or weak gods, health, or I call them the hearth gods and resurrecting the idea of the Christian society, health, wealth, and pleasure. And so really it's the materialism of modernity. It's really Jeremy Bentham who is the great seducer and not, not Ralph Waldo Emerson. You know, I used to think, you know, Emerson's a great, you know, to thine own self be true kind of uh, preacher. And, uh, you know, in some ways that there is an element for freedom Christ has set us free. And so there is a kind of, there are powerful Christian echoes in a lot of this Promethean pride. And there's a way in which, you know, I can make a case, and I do, that a culture of freedom really emerges out of a culture of faith because it's religious people who can actually stand up in this current time of political correctness and say, no, men are men and women are women. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Homosexual acts are sinful. We actually have the courage to say that because of the power of our faith. And that's, a, that's an amazing freedom that I think is very increasingly precious in our time. But now we go to, to the Benthamite dominance, the empire of utility. And it's this anti-metaphysical small view of human destiny. So I kind of would rather have a grandiose Promethean adversary than the sort of small ball, uh, let's just stay safe and uh, um, maximize our utility. If we just get more GDP growth, it doesn't really matter what people mo believe morally. And so I think, I think that's, my, that's my sense of, uh, of the trajectory of 20th century modernity. And, and so the more de-Christianized we come, we actually, the less Promethean we are, the more frightened we are, uh, the more anxious we are, uh, the more fragile. You know, it's, you know, a Promethean society does not ask for safe spaces. Uh, and we have a society that wants safe spaces. This, so this tells us that people are disempowered, they're, they're, they're fragile, they're anxious, and, and just people don't want to live that way. And this is, you know, I'm Augustinian in the sense that our hardest restlessness until it finds its rest in God. And so, so I think that there's a, you know, we could, this is why I call the return of the strong gods. People want to live for something other than themselves because you can't really live for yourself. You live for the idol of pleasure or the idol of financial security or the idol of, you know, good health. You can't actually live for yourself. You have to serve something. And so we set up these little tinfoil cellophane, you know, tinfoil wrapped idols, uh, which are tiny little small things that are, that no pagan would ever think was a noble way to live. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, I, I appreciated both of your uh, most recent books, uh, particularly because uh, I, 
we we have the same conversation partners, Rusty. I mean, we we've been thinking with the same people, and you lay these uh, the, these uh, assessments out very well. I did have the interesting thought that has kind of trapped both of your two most recent books, and that is that events are unfolding so fast that I can actually read your book and date almost exactly when you finish the manuscript uh, by by where the the issues drop off, and and I think that's that's never been true, at least in my lifetime. And by the way, you and I are born the same year, 1959, so our lifespan covers much of the same territory. So so let me tell you this, I. Uh, as a young evangelical theologian, young Protestant theologian, and very much uh, concerned as an Augustinian, as a Reformed theologian for the perpetuation of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Um, in all of my early years, even, even during the time, nearly 30 years, I've been president of this institution, I thought that the great challenge was epistemological. I thought the great challenge was to Revelation. The great challenge uh, was to the authority of Scripture. The great challenge was to uh, uh, truth, just to, in terms of everything from deconstructionism to uh, uh, you know the, the the complete subversion of truth uh, that uh, that kind of marks the academy these days. I, I came to the conclusion about twenty years ago that ontology is actually. Uh, a more urgent crisis. And as you know, from both sides of the equation, so to speak, that, that's not a usual place for a Protestant to go. Um, but we're all kind of getting there if we're thinking seriously about these issues. That, oh, no, uh, that, you're halfway pardon to natural me? law. You're halfway to natural law. No, I'm not halfway to natural law. <laughs> you're all the way? I, I'm pretty much all the way to natural law. But as... But as a Protestant, it's a it's a different appropriation of natural law. But but go ahead, please. I agree. It is it is a. Um, here's the way I thought. I mean, I've had the same journey because you know the Bartian stuff was all problem of revelation questions. And, and I wrote my dissertation on Bart. Right. It is. I mean, he's a. Uh, uh, but um, I remember I was a grad student and I read Donald McKinnon. Donald McKinnon was this very eccentric. Um, Cambridge theologian. And McKinnon said, it was very perceptive in his lecture called The Borderlands of Theology. And this was the time period when people were debating the rationality of religious belief. And he said he didn't think the epistemological question was really all that relevant to most people. Most people objected to Christianity morally, or they didn't like what Christianity teaches about how to live. And you know, I, I took that very much to heart. And I think over the next decade, uh, as I was saying, I realize people are frightened by what Christianity teaches. Uh, it's not that they don't think that God exists or they probably don't have an opinion one way or the other. It's just they find it frightening. Uh, and then you go read the Sermon on the Mount, and it is frightening. Read <laughs> St. Paul, you got to die to your old, the old man has to die. And people say, well, wait a minute. C.S. Lewis has got this wonderful passage in The Great Divorce where this young man suffers from sexual sin. He's got the lizard on his shoulder and the lizard's whispering, you can't live without me. And I think we don't believe that we can really live in Christ's righteousness without being destroyed by the holiness of God. And, you know, that's what the Israelites thought at the base of Mount Sinai. Keep him away. And uh, so the intuition is not incorrect. 
but of course, it it it, it manifests a, a massive uh, lack of hope that in Christ we can really we can we can enter into something we could never do or, or endure in our natural under our natural powers. Um, yeah, I was convinced of the same thing, by the way. Uh, that the primary objection to Christianity in uh, in the West was moral rather than epistemological. I was actually convinced of that by uh, Tolkien uh, as a young person, and it wasn't so much what he said as the way he told the story. And uh, and then later I read his letters uh, volume, and you know he wrote letters to his son, which are actually quite outstanding letters, deeply deeply Christian letters. And, and he actually makes that point, and I thought in retrospect, yeah, that, that's kind of what I was intuiting. Uh, the, the, uh, the outrage to Christianity is, uh, is epistemological in certain circles based upon revelation knowledge, but in the main, uh, it is just as Lewis said, uh, what will have to change will be my sex life, and uh, that's the one thing I'm unwilling to change. That, that, that was something he diagnosed. I, 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 excuse me. Or it's wealth. You know, it's there are many. There are many. Um, we, we all have different bondages, and we just don't believe we can endure the uh, the freedom from those bondages. And that's why I think I think that ultimately that's why people. I mean, many people convert because they see in Christians like, whoa, they can do that. Wow, they can love one another. They can make sacrifices for others. Uh, they can stand up in public and say things that I'm kind of half thinking, but don't have the courage to say. And so my my conviction is I believe America is a, we have a very powerful culture of freedom. That's what we cherish. I look around me today and, and uh, it's just shocking to me how unfree people are. I mean, they, they won't, I met a young person and he said, the first thing you learn in your freshman year in college is don't say what you're thinking. And if Christians can be, I think that is going to be our witness in the coming decade. We are a people of freedom. We are not going to kowtow. We are not going to, you know, bend our knee to uh, the, the gods of, uh, you know, these idols of our age. And I think people are going to be inspired by that. I think that's going to be a big inspiration for people. Well, I, I share that hope. I do want to press back a little bit, and and I th I think you've actually made this point, but uh, I'm not sure Americans love freedom all that much anymore. I, I just I'm not I'm not convinced of that because uh, on the American College and University campus, it used to be the incubus of freedom, and now the one thing that you really don't even hear conversation about is freedom. And when's the last time a major academic wrote a, wrote a book on freedom that wasn't about in some historical analysis or, or the deconstruction of freedom? And and even the 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 moral impulses of the society, they're now about, I mean, coming from the LGBTQ revolution, it's not about freedom. It's not about my freedom to experiment or whatever. It's it's about my bondage to this identity. Um so yeah, I'm I'm kind of concerned about this to the point of uh, my current writing project. Uh, about a third of it is is questioning uh really the existence of freedom in the West. I mean, just look at the Cancel culture, I don't really like to use that term, but uh, I mean, free speech was born as an activist movement at the University of California, Berkeley. I think anyone would think of Berkeley as a bastion of free speech now. No, I agree with you, but I guess maybe I'm, I'm just a, I'm a hopeless American optimist. And so 
I just think that uh, our fellow citizens, yes, I mean, Americans have always been conformist. We invented mass culture. So we've got these countervailing forces in our, in our soul as a nation. But I just have to believe that, that don't tread on me remains a powerful impulse in the American people. Uh, and, and, you know, when I, when I was, um, was part of this group that met in California and um, one of the participants in the group taught classics at Cal Northridge, and he was a public critic of uh, LGBT ideology. And, you know, he had these, he was a very popular teacher and um, his students didn't agree with him, but they really admired him. He had something that they wanted. So, and of course it was, it was this evangelical faith that gave him the courage and, and uh, to, to speak out, but they wanted a little piece of that freedom because they saw it in him. He was not intimidated and dominated by uh, by the, the the culture, and they in their hearts knew that they wanted to do that too, even if they didn't agree with him on that particular issue. They wanted their freedom. That's hope, and I and I, I want to acknowledge that and agree with that. Uh, however, I think what's happening right now is that when you find those professors, they tend to be about our age. Um, the process of selection, self-selection, in the American Academy right now means that I think there'd be very few. I mean, I look at some of the heroic figures, uh, Henry Mansfield at Harvard, people like that. They're just going to completely, I think, you know, or uh, Robbie George at Princeton. Um, I can only hope and pray there are young Mansfields and Georges walking the earth, but uh, I'm not convinced that they're there. Well, maybe uh, it will be outside of the uh, universities. Um, I mean, it could be the case that the universities evolve in the direction of these sort of highly specialized vocational training for, you know, for the university class uh, and cultural literacy. Actually, I think the churches will, we could be in a kind of, you know, dark ages where the churches actually carry the cultural memory of the West to the next generation. And I think that's, I see that as part of our vocation as Christian intellectuals is not just to announce the gospel, to the next generation, but also to convey to them uh, the, the richness of our inheritance, our cultural inheritance. Let me, uh, let me say, I share that hope, by the way, and uh, Christianity has served that, uh, that vital role in, in the past. Uh, we're in a very different context, but I, I want to go back to something we were talking about. We just kind of mentioned natural law, let it land there, and then we moved on. I, I want to come back to it for a few moments. So this is a self-therapy here, Rusty, forgive me. But uh, as, a, uh, as a young evangelical, I thought, well, natural theology is a, is a Catholic dead end, uh, and it's the abandonment of revelation. So the Catholics deserve whatever they get. If in their uh, natural law theology, they eventually uh, you know, reason themselves into the, the truth, uh, the ontological truth, but without any kind of, uh, of adequate theological structure. So uh, Dr. Carl F.H. Henry was a dear friend and mentor to me, and he and I presented uh, papers at a very uh, uh, rarefied uh, summit meeting nearly 30 years ago with the LGBT issues very much on the horizon, but with no consonants LGBT to, uh, to use at the time. But uh, one of the questions was, 
can evangelicals or Protestants use natural law reasoning? And, uh, you know, I guess there's a sense in which Bart was always barking in the background, nine. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, but, but it seemed that Luther was doing the same thing, you know, that, that Luther and Calvin were yelling nine, no. Uh, and, uh, and yet, I, I, as, a, as a theologian and trying to figure these things out, I came to a different conclusion because if, if a, the main crisis is epistemological, uh, a crisis of scripture, knowledge, truth, authority, then um, then you don't need natural law for that. And I actually argued in a paper that I did write back in 1994 that uh, that the evangelical appropriation of natural law would be a a a step backwards, a a, a compromise. And and it's because then I think I saw it in the classical kind of 20th century evangelical model as if using natural law, you're you're abandoning scriptural authority. And, and honestly, I think that's been, so I think the evangelical conceit is that you can have biblical revelation without an adequate ontology, and an ontology implies natural law, among other things. Um, I think the Catholic conceit has been that you can have binding argument, culturally binding argument on the basis of natural law that, uh, that would win in certain circumstances where revelation claims would not, you know. Uh, so, I just I just want to say to my Catholic friends who's who uh, and, and uh, you know people like George Weigel have been writing about this for years saying that the Protestant error is always showing up saying the Bible says and instead we should argue from natural law and I just want to say well just show me the member of the Senate whose mind has been changed by a natural law argument. I agree. You know, it, it turns out that all the people arguing from natural law are Christians. Well, that tells you something right there. And I think that uh, Saint Thomas observes that one function of revelation is to illuminate the mind. So that we can actually see those things which the natural power of reason allows us to see. But our minds are clouded by sin. And so even though it's, uh, it's ontologically accessible, it's not epistemologically accessible. And so you need revelation in order to sort of, if you will, open our eyes so we can see reality as it actually is, even if we wind up describing that reality through natural law terms. So I think that's an important element there. And, and uh, yeah, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I mean, we can make natural arguments, and they're, they are important because uh, they anchor our scriptural imagination, as I think you're arguing, that we need to do. We need to anchor the scripture, our scriptural moral imagination in, in a kind of philosophically rigorous analysis. Uh, it doesn't supplant, by no means does it supplant, but it, it, it adds thickness to our, our biblical moral reasoning. And it makes it tangible. Um, you know, and, and it my, establishes my, limitations and boundaries. One of my colleagues um, yeah. said to me, you know, very much a fan of John Paul II, that John Paul II thought that we face an anthropological crisis about what it means to be human. And he said, no, it's worse than that. We face a metaphysical crisis, like you're, as you call it, an ontological crisis about whether there's really anything true, anything stable. I and mean, we live in a crazy you know, a crazy society where men can be women. I mean, that's, that, that is an, a clear sign of our profound alienation from the real as a society. So if I look at my own writing and, and theological arguments over the course of the last 25 or 30 years, I would say the greatest change that I see in myself, and I sometimes you know, go back and read my earlier stuff, um, I think the greatest change is that... Uh, 
I, I hardly ever make an argument now without talking about something like the uh, the orders of creation or uh, or creation order or or making tangible the fact that there's a there's a metaphysic here there's an ontology here and 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 by the way I only know that and this is this is I mean I am inveterately Protestant I only know that by divine special revelation uh, Romans chapter one I think sufficient explanation for why. The uh, the un, unregenerate unchristian mind simply will find a way to reject the uh, the data of natural law, but for Christians and I, and I love the way you put it because I've said it virtually exactly the same way as Christians who talk about the debate about natural law is not found between Catholics and secular thinkers or Protestants and uh, and and uh, the political left. Uh, it's it's now a conversation among. Uh, Protestants and Catholics, because we're the last two people who, frankly, care about the category, and now we share many of the common concerns that arise from it. The you know uh, first chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, you know that um, that uh, the 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 law of God or the logos of God is is it's the DNA of creation, and so we should expect it to be you know uh, we should expect it to be to be, to be, you know, to tell it, tell us its own purpose and logic, um, and uh, yes, I, I agree. Now, some people I know have come to faith through natural law. In other words, here's how I put it: just like I think people can come to faith because they see Christians and they envy their freedom, people can also come to faith because they see Christians and envy their realism metaphysical realism. It's like, wait a minute, here I am in the university, and I'm surrounded by these people who are denying reality in such an evident way. Look at those people over there. They actually pay attention to what's real. Uh, they, they, they seem to hearken to reality, and that also can draw people into the faith. Right, and I agree with that. I think that's, uh, that's something that C.S. Lewis demonstrated in his life, by the way. Uh, and the influence of his writings, uh, I just have to say, as a as a an evangelical, it can bring them to the gospel, but only the gospel can save them. Uh, that is, only Christ can save them by means of the gospel. In other words, they're going to have to hear the gospel uh, and and respond to it in order to be Christian. But they can be brought to um, the threshold of the gospel by simply observing the world uh, meaningfully. Which, which, by the way, I think is a deeply biblical principle. Uh, and the the Apostle Paul in, in Acts chapter 17 affirms that uh, comprehensively and methodologically, you know, by, by saying, you, you are asking the right questions. Um, and by the way, when you say that the only people talking about natural law now are Christians, that's true. I just want to point out, as, as you would well be able to document, that wasn't always so. Uh, I mean, after all, one of the fathers, so to speak, of any kind of natural law, uh, understand, be Aristotle. So classical philosophy uh, found its way there, which again is, I think, a part of what the Apostle Paul's affirming in Acts chapter 17. Um, but we're now living in an age in which the uh, the secular world is, is unhinged from reality, unhinged from uh, metaphysics, unhinged from truth, unhinged from being. Well, I think uh, a post-Christian society has not become pagan not in the straightforward sense. I mean, you don't go backwards. And uh, instead, uh, you know, it's, it's weird, you know, the woke revolution is, kind of, I mean, um, Joshua Mitchell has written a book that argues, I think quite persuasively, that this is a kind of perverted uh, Christian guilt and the need for scapegoats. 
to overcome guilt. I think there's something to that. Um, so, so it's uh, the, the post-Christian society, it's not sort of honorable pagan virtue, <laughs> which, which is genuine virtue at a natural level, although, although, uh, although utterly lacking in any kind of saving faith. Yeah, it's not like we're stuck with Plutarch as our conversation partner. No, no. Um, uh, and this is, you know, this is what is the, um, well, this is what is the perplexing future um, that we face. You got people like Michel Welbeck, the French novelist, who he's written for first things. And uh, he's something of a fellow traveler. But, if, you know, he can't, he wants to believe one of his main, the main character in Submission you know, goes to a monastery, he wants to believe. And I think that represents Welbeck, but he can't. Uh, and so there's an awareness in some of these figures, I think of their sort of modern day prophets, not in the biblical sense, but in the secular sense of, of, of distilling the spirit of the age that recognize that it's as uh, Newman recognized also, uh, you know, it's either faith or atheism. Um, and the sort of mealy-mouthed uh, sort of moralism and kind of uh, uh, diluted Christianity of 19th century English establishment was not going to endure. Uh, and there were very see. prescient voices, prophetic voices in Christianity in the 20th century who were clearly warning that uh, it's not Christianity or liberal society. It's in some sense Christianity or nihilism eventually. Yes. Um, because uh, that seems to mark what we're actually seeing right now, and uh, the despair, the emptiness. Nihilism, see, that's another thing, too, as I was working with students, I realized that the nihilism, there's a hard nihilism that can be very painful, but there's also a soft nihilism. And the soft nihilism, Lucretius is de rerum natura, you know, he's the materialist, Epicurean, and uh, it, it's a kind of consoling nihilism. If there's nothing worth fighting for, then no one will fight. If there's nothing worth dying for, then no one will die. If there's nothing worth sacrificing for, I won't have to make sacrifices. And it's a kind of lowering of the temperature of everything. And, you know, you can just, let's say, just chill out in life. Nothing matters. So it's not the Sartrean, not, you know, abyss of nothingness. Instead, it's... It's not that nothing matters. It's that nothing really matters very much. And I think that's actually where we are as a culture. Yeah, not I think that's well said. Nihilism, yeah. But this kind of therapeutic nihilism, anytime anything makes a demand on our souls, we, we discount it, we deconstruct it, we, we, we critique it. And that works until you have a baby. Until you have a baby, until somebody dies, uh, until you lose your job. Uh, um, yes, I, I agree. It works. Uh, those, it's funny, you know, the beginning of life and the end of life are these great, powerful, very, very powerful realities for people. It's not an accident that young people typically come back to church after they get married and have kids. I don't think it's just a cultural thing. I think it's actually a natural spiritual response to the gift of new life. And, uh, and death is another one. Uh, it's always hard. Um, that's where reality really uh, puts its stamp on on your life, uh, and the death of loved ones is uh, is you know the pain of the death of loved ones is it's it's hard to explain that away. 
someone responded to me in anger in uh, social media, and I don't track it much, but I happen to see this. Someone responded to me in anger in social media and said, I want nothing to do basically with your God or all the rest. And when you die, you will, uh, you'll be doing the same as I will do in a, in a dirt nap. And, and I'd never seen that expression before. It may be common, but I'd never seen it before. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, if that's true, then forget all this. I mean, it's just, if, if, if that's true, but then I thought, you know, if that's true, I'm not sure you care about the argument this guy evidently was so upset about. You know, in other words, uh, there's an inconsistency here. Well, people if, convert you to materialism, which is a very interesting, that's a very interesting contradiction. And I think it speaks to St. Augustine's insight, which is that the human heart seeks something higher. Uh, and we're just never going to be released from that desire to give ourselves to something higher. In this case, this guy's giving himself to some philosophy of materialism, which he serves and wants to convert you to. Um, and and uh, yes, uh, 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 in that sense, the materialism is, uh, as I say, this kind of lowering the temperature. This is why political correctness, it seems to be full of all these contradictions. How come they're so moralistic, but they deny the foundations of morality? And I think I've come to see that it's a idolatry is a system where you play one idol off the other. You know, you got the, the, the idol for fertility, oh, it makes demands, and then you run over and you got the idol for, for prosperity, and you, you run from one to the other, and, uh, and you, um, you play one off against the other. Also, I've come to see that, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, idols are often mocked for being mute, right? They're just dead pieces of wood. It's actually good news, right? Because you want to serve something that doesn't actually make any real demands. <laughs> so, I mean, it's funny that uh, I, I've really come to see that pri uh, idolatry, it's true in Romans 1, idolatry is the mother of all disasters for, it's, the, it's not that pride goeth before the fall, but rather idolatry goeth before the fall. And in the Old Testament as a whole, it's always idolatry that is the, it's the, it's the sort of nuclear holocaust. It's, it's really the, the mother of all sins. And, uh, and I've, I've come to think that it is the mother of all sins because it, it, can, it can feed our desire to worship without actually satisfying it. So it kind of keeps us on a starvation diet of, of service to something higher than ourselves. Uh, because if we really are abandoned with nothing to serve, then you know this the natural human impulse would really assert itself. And better to be on the 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 morphine drip of idolatry. There is one particular issue that I believe is driving uh, this uh, metaphysical uh, crisis in, in and I don't mean the most fundamental issue, I mean the most pressing issue, and that's the imago dei. Because if the Imago Dei is a conceptual complement that we pay to human beings, then that can be deconstructed and, and dismissed. But if it's rooted in reality, and that means it has to be in being, and, and so it's not, not, it's not just real as a concept, it's real in being, um, then, uh, then that does change everything. And uh, again, that's very much a part of my current project. And, and so all the talks about rights and 
artificial rights and synthetic rights and natural rights and all the rest, it only makes a difference from a Christian understanding. And I think that means from, from reality, if, if there is an, a metaphysical uh, grounding to the imago dei in which we actually can say and must say that every single human being at every point in development uh, from uh, fertilization till natural death uh, is a being made in the image of God, possessing dignity and life, which is itself sacred because it is the imago dei, as God made clear to to Noah in Genesis chapter nine. Uh, so I think this is this is where uh, evangelical Protestants are going to be in a lot of conversation about uh, how in the world we maintain the faith once we're all delivered to the saints, even beginning at the level of the imago dei. Yeah, I think uh, the way I think of the Imago Dei is that every human being at any all stages of development is capable of friendship with God. So the, the you know, the, the earliest embryo can enter into f- uh, friendship with God. The the, the most, uh, uh, you know, the, the Alzheimer-ridden elderly person can enter into fellowship with God. So, because uh, that's, you know, ultimately, that's our final end. So why did God create us? God created us in order to enter into fellowship, for us to enter into fellowship with him, so he could draw us to himself, uh, not as demigods, but as human beings. And I think the Imago Dei is the doctrine that lets us say we can be in fellowship with God as human beings because we are imprinted with the image of God. I uh, have ongoing conversations in my head with lots of people, some of them for a brief amount of time, some of them for my entire adult life, some of them since I read their book or work. Some of them are dead. I read their book centuries after they died, some of them very much alive. Uh, One of the books that's been a constant conversation partner to me in the background is After Christianity by Gianni Vatimo. And uh, it's clear that uh, you have an ongoing conversation with him as well. Uh, it struck me that his idea of uh, weakness is uh, is a very, very accurate description of what really is the essence of modernity. Eventually, it's this very weak claim. And look, Rusty, I'll be I'll be honest. I think I think evangelical Christianity is looking increasingly like the weakness that uh, that Vitimo in- indicates here, and. Uh, I guess if 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 I'm just looking at it phenomenologically, I have to wonder if he's not right in everything. Just uh, again, as a Christian, I'm I'm bracketing that for a moment. Is, is, is that ends up because, um, in, in in your most recent book, The Return of the Strong Gods, you really deal with the fact that uh, that weakness is it's almost like a malignant uh, cancer spreading throughout the the entire world of meaning. It's the Gospels without the resurrection of Christ. I mean, the resurrection is the power of God. And what Vatimo has is uh, the kenosis of God without his triumph. Um, And so it's alluring. And I think this is one reason he's an interesting character is that he's a spokesman for, uh, I mean, Nietzsche thought that, you know, Christianity ultimately was the slave morality that preached uh, the triumph of weakness over strength. And uh, there's a certain, there's a death of God theologians of the 60s. Fatima know that he's reinventing their thinking, or Boltmann, uh, Paul Tillich, 
uh, you know, for a person educated in 20th century Protestant theology, liberal Protestant theology as I was, uh, there are many echoes of those figures as they're trying to, they're trying to coordinate Christianity with modernity. Uh, it's just a particularly naked and clear in Batimo's case about where it all ends up. But yeah, uh, that's not Christianity. I mean, Christianity is not, uh, it's not a weakening, it's, uh, it's redemption. Um, and the resurrection of Christ is, uh, the triumph is the, is the triumph of God. I mean, Tom Wright is really, you know, excellent on this. Um, but you look at it, the Catholic Church, you know, uh, since the Second Vatican Council, there really has been not a whisper of the church militant. Uh, and the church militant was the, um, that was the Catholic form of the Christus Victor uh, theme and that evangelical Protestantism emphasized. So your intuition is correct. I think it's true on my side of the aisle that Catholicism manifests many of the, much of the weakness that Batimo uh, identifies. Um, like Paul Bork was such an influence on me. He was the one who he represented with his verbal punches that that God that the incarnation of God in Christ is not a, a sort of meek um, invitation, but a direct challenge, a, a kind of punch in the jaw to the to the slumbering sinful human being. Yeah, and, and on the resurrection, Tom Wright has been a very, very brave uh, defender, not only of the of the truth of resurrection, but of its of of its of its magnificent <laughs> uh, eternity shaking truth, and 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 of our and and I'd say both at the metaphysical and the epistemological level, he's done a, he's done a very brave defense. What what concerns me about someone like Tom Wright is though, in his uh, among many things, to be honest, is is that. Many of the issues we're talking about here, such as ontology, such as even the LGBTQ revolution, I mean, you won't get any firm word from so many about what the meaning of these things is now. Uh, you, it's very easy to push it all into eschatology. <laughs> That's a very good point. You defer your answer until uh, end times. Uh, yes, uh, I can't speak for others. I, I, I have, I, early in... I think I was in grad, graduate school in the 80s. The, the, the L and the G part of the LGBT was very much, um, you know, in, in full force. And uh, you just have to make up your mind whether nature has a say uh, and um, whether nature has a say in, 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 in how we order our lives. And, and then you have to make a decision about how many enemies you want to make. Right. Isn't that <laughs> I don't the want to make any enemies, but you know what I mean. You have no, to make I, I do. How, how many enemies you're willing to make? Yes, you're willing uh, to make. But by the way, I love your phrase, uh, you know, whether or not nature has a say. And uh, this gets back to, I, I will say, that my formula that I teach all the time, and this came to me uh, almost as poetry in my mind, and that is ontology always trumps autonomy. And... Uh, so, I mean, I will say, and I know you mean this, nature will have its say. I guarantee anyone who considers the question, nature will have its say. And, and well, so I was... We just experienced was, that for the last year. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, I was talking to uh, uh, LGBTQ activists and uh, just 
absolutely presenting. I mean, it's just, it wasn't making up the fervor. I mean, this was absolute commitment to especially the transgender non-binary thing. And I, I said, well, look, here, here's the thing. Um, if and when this civilization is no more, and uh, some subsequent uh, generation of the Lord Terry's comes back and excavates, and they find any individual's grave, and they find DNA, that molecular structure is going to be XY or XX. And uh, whatever, whatever claims were made about that individual or by that individual during that entire individual's lifetime or memory will come down to still what is XX or XY, and nature will have its say. And I would make the further point that uh, nature is a gift. In other words, God's creation is a gift. And uh, we are happy insofar as we live in accord with nature. And because of our fallenness, we are disordered in relation to nature. And I think one of the harms that the LGBT movement does is to make it difficult for young ch for children and young adolescents to sort out what it means to be a man or a woman. So very, I mean, you would say, well, why would they need to sort it out? Well, we're fallen. We, we, we live in this disordered condition. And so uh, we've really short-circuited the process by which young people can try to figure out what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And uh, this is going to lead to a lot of unhappiness. We already see it in, in our colleges and universities, a lot of unhappiness. Yeah, they are not... Uh... They are not little universes of happiness and uh, and fulfillment, no, or so even I, even so meaning. I, yeah, so and, I think that yeah. uh, I mean I think we need to speak for the truth. I mean, obviously, and and I think on the LGBT thing that's really crucial. But I think I think we also Christians often also know that that this is an act of charity. Uh, it's to speak the truth in love, right? So our motive should be love. But truth speaking, truth speaking in this crazy moment of our history is an act of love in itself because you're breaking the charm of error and allowing people to like wake up for maybe, maybe some of them will wake up and go, well, wait a minute, this is the right way to live. It's been a fascinating conversation. And uh, by the way, I have this conversation uh, with you uh, and your colleagues at First Things quite regularly, every issue. Uh, I have the entire library of first things going back to the very first issue. I was uh, honored to know Richard John Newhouse, and uh, I am uh, very thankful for uh, the voice of first things and uh, very much a part of this conversation. May it continue to be so. And I've enjoyed this conversation, Rusty. I hope we'll be able to pick it up again someday. Great. Well, thanks for having me. And I really appreciate the, your ministry and your witness and in these crazy, crazy times at the beginning of the 2020s. I really appreciate my guest, Dr. R.R. Reno, Rusty Reno, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.